And it was just so wonderful because when they were dancing, we didn't feel like we were alone. We really felt like the ancestors of that land were, were dancing with them, that they were there. And tears just started coming out of my eyes. And it was such a spiritual moment for, for me. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we're taking time not just to do a show where we explore spirituality and personal spiritual experience, but also to think of it as a group. And of course, when you think of a group, what comes to mind is a gathering. Sometimes we do that on Zoom (laughs) these days, and other times we need a place. And we usually like to have a special place or sort of a dedicated space. I'm here with producer Austin Ball. Austin, thanks for being with me. Hi, Steve. I want to talk a little bit as we head into today's adventure, which we're calling Gathering Places. And I wonder what you think of when you think of a gathering in the way we're talking about it. Yeah, I think a gathering is an opportunity to connect uh, with people that you love, people that you may not know that well. And it's pretty central to the mission of religion, in my mind. There is this etymological thing that some people know about, but it's the lig part of religion. It's kind of associated with other words like ligament or allegiance. Stuff that holds together. Yeah, you think like, The arm bone connects to the rib bone, and the rib bone connects to the backbone. That's the ligament (laughs) element. It's a means of bringing things together that should be joined. So you think of what a religion joins a person to, and it could be God, it could be their community, it could be to a place, like a, a space of land or a building too. And I hope we're going to talk about all of those in this episode. I think of uh, going to grandma's house. That's a simple one for me. That's where Christmas is for our family for several generations. And it started, of course, very small and then added in spouses of kids and then grandkids. And now great-grandkids, we can just barely, barely fit. But that tells us something about who we are as a family. So really interesting how much it's about the people as well as the event. For me, uh, we gather or have gathered at my grandparents' house for July 1st, which is sort of the Canadian version of Independence Day. When the pioneers down here from Utah were settling there on Blackfoot and Kainai lands, they wanted to prove to the crown that they were not seditionists, but royalists in a sense. So we made a really big deal celebrating July 1st. Canada Day. Yes. Oh, Canada our home and native land. And so I go home to Canada, and that's always been a really uplifting and identity-strengthening experience because I do connect with my ancestors who have been there for several generations. Well, today we sort of specialized a little bit in choosing people, in choosing places and cultures that all fit, not necessarily worldwide, although I think there will be resonance for anyone who has a belief system and has cause to gather with fellow believers, which is to focus on indigenous gatherings, specifically here in the U.S. Yeah, there is a pretty rich and diverse array of indigenous peoples that gather across North America every year. So we wanted to feature those. A couple of the guests specifically are of Diné, or Navajo descent. The first of those, her name is Farina King, and she is a Native American historian and scholar. We talked with her about this element of her spirituality, as well as with Jean Tapahi, and he's a landscape photographer who's undertaking a project of capturing the healing power of some traditional forms of Native dance. Both of those people... They were really interesting to talk with. We also wanted to feature a place alongside an event. In Chaco Canyon, there are some Pueblo ruins called Pueblo Bonito. We wanted to investigate that in comparison with a modern event, one that's taking place not too far away in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that's called the Gathering of Nations. It's one of the biggest powwows here in North America. Maybe you could comment on why you wanted to focus on native faith traditions or spirituality. Yeah, um, well, this kind of goes along with celebrating 
Canada Day, actually, where in a sense we're memorializing white settlement and in a lot of senses colonialization. There is a complicated and tragic history surrounding a lot of this stuff. And so we wanted to especially dedicate the power of gathering to First Nations for this episode. Additionally, when you ask people to list world religions, you know, First Nations spirituality or indigenous wisdom, it's not something that normally comes up close at the top of the list. And I think that there are a few reasons for that. One is that we've historically intentionally suppressed their religion and culture, uh, which we have to make amends around. Even now, we're, we're doing this podcast on Ute land here at BYU campus. But also, in the West, we have these authenticated channels of religious authority, in a sense. You've got scripture, and you've got the ecclesia, different church bodies, and authoritative figures. The indigenous tribes of North and South America, they didn't have those same systems. They have an oral history. And for that reason, you know, it's not something that we readily acknowledge in our classification of religious symbols. We don't have a text, at least in the physical existence of something you can turn the pages and read because of that being an oral tradition. And also, a lot of traditions will have, for instance, a mosque or a synagogue or a chapel. But some of the structures built by the early history that we know from the Native Americans weren't always thought of as those kinds of structures, but we've learned they actually are. So it's the gathering, it's the people, it's also a tradition. It's not always just a harvest or the solstice, but there's something spiritual about it. We'll turn now to the first guest Austin mentioned, and that's Farina King. She is a Diné Scholar of Native American History at the University of Oklahoma and holds the Horizon Chair of Native American Ecology and Culture there. We spoke to Farina about the meaning of land and the development of her people's spiritual identity. The land we're born on is our point of origin and marks the center in a growth cycle of departure and return. And sadly, as we discuss with Farina, Many Native Americans didn't leave their land voluntarily, but were forced away into foreign education programs. Just one generation ago, some of her own relatives were taken to Indian boarding schools in the United States, institutions established by the federal government with the objective to assimilate the indigenous children into modern American culture. School teachers made them give up their language, their religion, hoping they'd be unable to return to their land after such estrangement. Farina writes about how, against those odds, students at the Intermountain Indian School in Brigham City, Utah, held on to their heritage by remembering their land. So in Dene, we actually introduce ourselves by clans. That's mm -hmm. our family history. So I would say, and as I will now, in Navajo, She'e Bilagana Nishle, Do Kia'ani Bashishchin, Bilagana Dashache, Do Sinijini Dashanale. So what that means is I, I share that we, you know, recognize our mothers. We are, the clans are a part of us through our mothers. So my mother is English, American, a lot of Scottish too, Scottish, American, white settler descent. And I'm born for the Towering House and Black Streaked Woods clans of Diné. Mm -hmm. And I'm a citizen of the Navajo Nation. So that's a lot even there to unpack, but that's how we introduce ourselves. And my Diné relatives would know what I'm saying and where my family comes from, just from that. Returning is something I've thought a lot about because I feel often like I'm in exile. And they would say... Even more specifically, where are your umbilical cords buried? That's how you ask where you are from, because those kinds of ways of communicating exchange, it shows how important land is to a person's identity, that you are a part of that land. It defines you, your people. It's an embeddedness of land that I talk about in my first book, The Earth Memory Compass. Like it's a, a compass that guides who you are and, and where you came from, but also where you're headed to. And it's a cycle. It's very cyclical, the ways of life, the way we think about life. So that image you said, where, where are you from, where 
is your umbilical cord buried? I mean, that's not just a metaphor. That's a literal thing. Yes. And a connection. It's a very visceral image that shows, I think, the power of connection. Not only is that a question, people, when the baby, when a Dene baby is born, traditionally, you know, along ancestral practices and beliefs, the people would take the umbilical cord and were very careful, very thoughtful of where they buried it. There's a belief you are drawn to where your umbilical cord is buried. So they often place it by the hogan, the Mm -hmm. traditional Dene dwelling, because they want you to come home. They want you to go home and they know that you need to journey. You need to go on a journey, the cycle of, you know, explore your life, youth, places, but you will know how to come home. And they might place it in a corral, you know, so to draw you towards working with livestock. I mean, I even met a Latter-day Saint woman who placed it by a temple because there's also these dynamics of what that came to mean for her. She wanted her grandchild drawn to a Latter-day Saint temple, right? So that is a literal place and connection that they see too. So it's one thing as an adult to have sought education or family or whatever and be drawn back and have strong memories, perhaps, of the the place you are from. Something you've studied that feels like an interruption or tragic is the idea of children being displaced, maybe before they still have a a sense of that. And yet, when you're talking about a, a boarding school, And yet the art that you feature, some of the poems and the drawings, shows that there was already this huge connection to landscape and to the stories. And I I wonder if I could just read a couple of lines. Sure. These poems were just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them from Leo Edison, 1973. The sun sets slowly on the mountain and the shadows cover the windy valley of the Navajos. Here the gods of the Navajos live in the sacred hills. So already this young person sees something sacred about the land, not just, well, I recognize this because I grew up here, Mm -hmm. the shape. Ella Yazzie in 1973. But to have this sort of insight, uh, earth, so quiet, you can hear how earth was made. In the land of seeming desolation, life abounds. But this idea that so quiet you could hear how the earth was made. What a beautiful image. And then this, uh, I'll just, part of this from Farewell to My Land from Harry Benali. Mm -hmm. I can't live here anymore. This used to be my land once, a land which I dearly loved, a beautiful land I was proud of. I've been with the white man too long, my friend. There's nothing here for me now. And I'm skipping ahead. Because I can't find happiness here anymore. There was a time but it's past. I can't live here anymore, but this used to be my land. Thank you for including those words of uh, from the Inner Mountain Indian boarding school students. And that's from the book that I worked with Michael Taylor and James Swenson on. And Michael Taylor, um, being a Native American literature scholar, um, worked with students from Brigham Young University, especially on um, delving into and sharing with us, you know, these different poems. And then I was fortunate to meet uh, various alumni, mm. past students who we now call boarding school survivors because you have to understand these school systems were designed to destroy those attachments. The between- culture, the language, even familial. Yeah. Atten- wow. With land, though, just outright oh, uh-huh. land as well, right? Because the land, as I mentioned before, is integral to indigeneity. What does it mean to be indigenous? And in this case, specifically Dene. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be Dene? To know and be drawn to that, you know, nitz'eh, your umbilical cord, and to your home and community. Even when I introduced my clans, when I called myself uh, born for the Towering House and Black Streaked Woods clans, the Neh clans, a sense of peoplehood, it's tied to place that my ancestors came from a place that had those woods mm. with the Black Streak, you know, and that um, my ancestors also came from a place 
that's known as Deneta, the origins of uh, our, our origin stories and origins of Dene people, where we say the first clans emerged and came from changing women, like these stories we have. And they know that by just how I say this is the my family, where we come from. But when you have these school systems that don't value that and they push these other values and even... Um, have power dynamics of not just a government. It's off, People talk about this often in terms of the government, the government did this, but there's complicit society in these movements and individuals, right, who are struggling and contentious over land. You know, who owns, controls the land that a people live off of, how they relate to it. And there are waves, waves of history, of attack on Diné peoplehood because they're in the way of encroachments, of conquests and, and settler colonialism. And it's violent. That's a part of my history too. I'm a descendant of survivors of the long walk, the forced removal, a scorched earth campaign. You know, that language that just always makes the hairs on my skin yeah. raise, you know? So they were actually destroying what had been built, yes. thinking that would that the Push people would have no reason to return, not knowing that it was the land itself was the connection, not what the... Uh, That's how built. they forced them off, too. Yeah. They, they poisoned water, uh. water wells, um, the U.S. military who are a part of this. But again, the language we hear often about pioneers and these histories, state histories even, um, of, of what would become Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. You know, those are the four corner states that are... Um, the Nebuchadnezzar is now surrounded by, you know, within... Yes those uh, states and the histories that we often hear of those um, and the way people talk about it. I mean, I just hear this last week, you know, uh, a few days ago of this was wasteland, this was barren land, even the movement of keep Utah wild, which is, I, I think is a great movement, you know, of, yeah. of uh, conservation and, and respecting land, but they're missing a very important perspective, missing a very important understanding of the past that to indigenous peoples, this is not wasteland, it's home. And what you share with Harry's poem there about how he said this used to be home is that was the goal of these boarding schools and a lot of their agenda is to still remove, push off and disconnect indigenous peoples from their land so that it's open for resource extraction to be used, you know, according yeah. to however they Ura want to view uranium it. Uranium mines, yes. which contributed to poisoning the environment. And, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So because of the dispersal of Native peoples and separation from land and even separation from each other, like not to travel just as one group that stays together even, but the spreading out. Are the gatherings even more important now because of that scattering, like a powwow? Yeah, um, gatherings are so important. This is actually something I'm trying to bring to a lot of people's attention, even in with Inner Mountain, mm -hmm. is just on the weekend of July 24th, that weekend, um, Inner Mountain alumni gathered for the first time since COVID-19, but they had been gathering for many years before. The school shut down in 1984. Mm -hmm. But the alumni, even if they scattered, like you said, some returned to Diné Bikeya, Navajo homelands, but others remained in Northern Utah or they went to different places, big cities through the relocation mm -hmm. programs too, that were pipelining these Diné students or different Native American students and peoples to big cities like Chicago, Los Angeles. So they're going all over, like you mentioned. But then, you know, just this, not that long ago from now, they gathered in Diné Pequeya, Navajo Nation, as alumni and they share stories and they find strength and mm. like this reinforcement, healing. It's a healing and gatherings are so important because of that healing when the people come together. I mean, that's a um, very important element of, of 
ceremony of people coming together. And you can see it, you know, when they prepare for that and the people, you know, talk about it or, or the way that they don't talk about it, you know, too, yeah. like a verbal aspect, yeah. but they know, you know, in, in the communities. And so to me, many, I realize many people do not know how important those gatherings are and what a sacrifice it is. You can learn more about this history from the book I quoted in the interview, Returning Home, Diné Creative Works from the Intermountain Indian School. Dr. King co-authored this with professors Mike Taylor and James Swenson, and the title is available at the University of Arizona Press and on Amazon. We talked about spiritual cords that bind a person to the land they personally come from. That connection is experienced individually, but is it possible for an entire people to be connected with a historical place of origin? The Puebloan peoples of the Four Corners region travel great distances to pay tribute to their ancestral home in Chaco Canyon. Sprawling next to the riverbed in northwestern New Mexico lie several massive monuments, the largest of them Pueblo Bonito, which covers an astonishing three acres of area. The ancestral Pueblo built many structures like this before permanently evacuating the area for reasons that remain unknown. We talked with Nathan Hatfield, a conservation officer who has worked in the National Park Service for 20 years. Since his arrival at Chaco Culture National Historic Park, he's facilitated the use of ancestral sites with the Pueblo to honor the ones who came before them. We spoke with Nathan about the history of Chaco Canyon and the role it plays in the spirituality of the Pueblo today. It's my belief, and, and, and others share this as well, that their culture was at a point in its lifespan when they had the ability to create monuments to, to themselves. And, you know, we, we, we have monuments in America today that recognize our leaders and our accomplishments. And that's what I think they were doing in Chaco, building these grand, ostentatious, over-the-top monuments and Chaco Canyon became a destination where people might come from 40, 50, 60 miles away or, or more to visit these monumental structures. And we know that trade was happening. We know people were bringing things into the canyon from, from great distances. It's quite likely that people were coming to not just exchange material goods, but exchange ideas and knowledge. We know that in Chaco Canyon, they were very knowledgeable about astronomy. And they even had features, architectural features in their buildings that were aligned with astronomical events. So astronomy and architecture and turquoise design and uh, ceramics were all things that were uh, a big part of this culture that were being learned about and exchanged in Chaco Canyon. Well, it's impressive enough that even today is still worth going to see when it's past its prime. Do we have any evidence that there was any sort of a spiritual aspect to the gathering or what happened there? Modern Pueblo people today, they recognize Chaco as a very important spiritual center for their, for their culture. Chaco Canyon and the buildings have several kivas, which are round rooms, and they're generally recognized as a ceremonial place, you know, what, what we might call a religious place. And the modern Pueblo people still use kivas today for those same purposes. So there's definitely a ceremonial aspect to Chaco Canyon. We think that on certain 
holidays, for instance, you know, the summer solstice, which is coming up, during those time periods, there might be a, you know, a larger population in the canyon who would travel there to be there for, for those types of events. So those are things that, you know, modern Pueblo people tell us were some of the uh, reason, other reasons besides other things that I mentioned that would bring people to the canyon, not just not just to trade or to visit these these great structures, but there was definitely a, a ceremonial or a spiritual uh, layer behind a lot of the activities that took place in the canyon. And we know that primarily because of, you know, the modern Pueblo people are still doing similar things. You mentioned Native people still today using those places. Can they actually come and use those places that are preserved in the national park there, Chaco Canyon? Well, yeah, Native people, they come all the time. And sometimes they ask for permission to visit certain places that we don't normally allow the general public to go to. And if we can accommodate those requests, we we do. Native people will come and leave offerings. Quite often, some corn pollen is a pretty common type of offering that Native people will leave behind. For certain park-sponsored special events, we'll invite Native dance groups to come. And when those groups come, they're carrying on traditions that their ancestors have been doing for centuries. And having those dances is a, is a way that they're actively using that space today. It's, it's good to see that they're continuing to recognize the importance of Chaco in their, in their ancestral story. Recently in Albuquerque was the Gathering of Nations, the first time in several years since COVID with Native people coming from all over the U.S. for a powwow or a gathering. Does that seem like a similar, a similar kind of a gathering to what happened in Chaco Canyon? Oh, yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels there. You know, I know when they go to Albuquerque, you know, it. it they go there and they, they dance and there's all kinds of other activities going on. And, you know, I'm sure for a lot of people who attend each year, it's an opportunity to reconnect with people who they haven't seen in, in a year or longer. And, you know, that camaraderie, that coming together, that shared spiritual experience and like I said, I know there's a lot of other activities happening, food vendors and all kinds of stuff happening. The gathering is a powerful thing to behold. The same kind of feelings that filled the hearts of people at Pueblo Bonito so many years ago continue today in a festival 150 miles and 800 years away. There's a surge of activity at the end of every April in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where thousands of indigenous Americans from across the continent come together every year for the Gathering of Nations powwow. With over 700 tribes in attendance, this festival represents the largest of its kind in North America. I went to the powwow to speak with those in attendance, asking them to explain what draws them to come from so far. Vince Bile of the Ojibwe tribe volunteers as an announcer for the festival's drum and dance competitions. He told me about the role of the powwow. Our powwows and these songs are a celebration of life. So in other words, uh, we think of those people that are no longer here, but we carry ourselves on with these songs and dances because that's the way they would want it. So uh, even though we've lost uh, people within our families and friends and relatives, and this is how we do things because this, this powwow is what it's called. It's called a celebration of life. Yeah. Vince travels all the way from the forests and lakelands of northern Minnesota to participate in the occasion. After 14 years of attending Gathering of Nations, he describes his feelings about the sites of the gathering. Well, I guess the name's appropriate for this poll. They call it the Gathering of Nations. Uh, yeah. to, for me, as even a, a, as being Native and to come here to see all the tribes, the colors, the designs, the regalia, the dresses on the women, the men, their regalias, 
all the different customs, the different traditions that come in that circle. It's pretty, uh, pretty powerful experience. Throughout the morning, more and more people arrive, and you can feel the excitement in the air. Amanda Russell is another who traveled far, this time from Connecticut, to return for the first time since the beginning of COVID-19, explaining what makes traveling the distance worth it. It's just good energy, good medicine, all the people. You make lots of connections, and it's just, yeah, it's wonderful. Hard to put into words. I love the celebratory feeling that seems like most everybody is happy and it's a time to just be proud of being native and um, celebrate our youth and celebrate our elders and just kind of bring the community together. That was Sierra Yazzie, a young Navajo mother who attended the Gathering of Nations with her children for the first time in her life. Alongside the festival's regular participants, the power of gathering attracts newcomers like Sierra every year. Although she lives elsewhere, she was recently drawn to reconnect with the values of her Navajo heritage and finds peace in her discoveries. You can find what you're looking for. However, what what might be hard, for example, someone like me is just kind of choosing your path. You know, like I was raised Christian and I ended up living in Minnesota where I was exposed to more traditional Lakota values, but that's not my tribe. And so... I think as we go through life, we, we do our best to adopt um, belief systems and practices that are meaningful for us and that, you know, provide some kind of benefit for us. Sierra connected with the religious traditions of her people later in life and picked up useful teachings from other systems along the way. I think that there's a lot that I've been able to learn and plug into in terms of our health and wellness as a community and supporting one another. and. Um, affirming things that are that are good for the soul. Sierra's message to the spiritually lost or struggling is to connect them with the soul of indigenous traditions, regardless of whether they are of native descent. You know, I just hope that people can really see the value of indigenous people, traditions and cultures and languages, that it's something we really need to work hard to bring back, to defend and affirm. A lot of people in America today don't have any kind of understanding that this is um, really an an important part of our humanity. You know, a lot of people that I meet, non-Native people are really, you know, lost and looking for something that can teach them about the truth of life and existence. And we have kind of an existential crisis. And so I think that um, turning to the people who have always lived on this land in North America to learn about how to live well here is is a valuable thing to do. Returning to roots, restoring vibrancy, and healing. These are themes that underlie the gatherings we've looked at from the Intermountain Residential School alumni to the descendants of the ancestral Pueblo and the celebratory powwows. Unfortunately, gathering is not always possible. So what alternatives exist when the possibility for reunion, physically, is taken away? Perhaps nothing in recent memory reminds us more of the gathering power than the COVID-19 pandemic, which took that privilege away from us for many, many months. People from around the world needed healing, but the energy of festivals and get-togethers was not available. In the wake of this reality, Jean Tapahe had a creative dream. Instead of bringing the people to him, he was inspired to take healing towards them, the ancestors, and the land, all through a group of four jingle-dressed dancers, his daughters, Aaron and Diane, and family friends, Sonny and Joanny. The jingle dress is a traditional Ojibwe garment worn by women in rituals of healing. Covered with many, many small bells, the ringing of the dress is said to evoke peace in the souls of those who hear it. Gene's beautiful capturing of the jingle's healing power can be seen on his website, tapahe.com, under the title Art Heals, The Jingle Dress Project. These photos stand alongside others which catch the spirit of America's natural landscapes. We talked with Gene about the circumstances that led to the project, the dream that initiated it, and what this meant for his connection with his ancestors and the land. So... The important part of that whole title is Art Heals. Mm -hmm. And the reason I I have it there is because the project 
isn't, a, you know, isn't, um, it's a healing project. It's, it's not about performing or about glamour. It, it's about healing. It's the same thing as like going to a powwow. A powwow is healing in the sense of gathering of people and, and laughter and, and being together. But it's not traditional healing. It's, it's more for recreational. And, and most of the times, powwows are, are there for competition amongst other, you know, other people in, in different dance categories. Well, this project, from what you describe, actually had its origins in healing. Right. I'm trying to keep that spirit. When the Jingle Dress Project, when I, I first started thinking about it, it actually came in a dream. It actually came to me in a dream during COVID. When COVID started in um, 2019, 2020, I had just got back from an art show in Phoenix, Arizona. And as we were driving back, my wife and I from Phoenix back to Utah, we were listening to the radio. And, they, and that's the time when they were starting to talk about, if you go out of state, you go back home, you should quarantine and not go out. And so, you know, just being who we are, we, we did, we quarantined, you know, and then all of a sudden we started getting, hearing these announcements where they were going to shut down the towns and businesses, you know, for a couple of weeks. And so we started thinking, okay, well, you know, yeah, we can, we can do a couple of weeks, you know, and I think as, as time passed, it just started getting longer and longer and, and worse and worse. And at that time, my, all my art shows started canceling. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, how am I going to feed my family? How, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? And it was pretty grim. And then in May, my, my, um, my aunt, who's my, who's my mom's um, sister, and she was our last matriarch in, our, in, our, in my family, she got COVID. And it was really sad because it was personal. And at the time, nobody really knew what COVID really was. They didn't know how um, it really spread or they didn't really have, you know, no vaccine or anything. And so within two weeks, you know, um, she was sick and we couldn't even go visit her because they wouldn't allow us to physically come into the building. And so we, we would call her. And my, my aunt at the time, she was in a, a nursing home. And it was sad because she didn't even know why she was sick. She didn't know what kind of sickness it was. And we couldn't really explain it to her. We, we, didn't, we didn't know ourselves, you know. And we just kept trying to keep her hopeful and say, you know, it's, it's going to get better. You can get better, you know. But after two weeks, she passed away. Within our culture, um, we... we um, we bury our um, our family within four days. Traditionally, we um, we mourn for four days, and then you know, and then we bury them. And um, because she had COVID, they they told us that we couldn't get her back into the family until they told us, and they never told us a date. You know, like oh, it'll be seven days or a week or whatever. So it took about two weeks for us to even get her body prepared for burial. And at the time, the reservation, the Navajo Nation, <clears throat> was closed to um, out, outsiders, even myself, my family. Even being Navajo, they wouldn't allow you to come into the, the Navajo Nation because they didn't want you, if you had COVID, you, to expose anybody on the Navajo Nation. But because um, we were coming back for a funeral, they allowed us to come in. At the time, they only allowed six people at the burial. And so as Navajo people, we always celebrate the people's lives when they pass away. And families and extended family and friends all come. And we usually have a big feast and a gathering. And we couldn't do that with her. And even the burial... There were only six of us that were able to lower the casket into the ground. <clears throat> and at the same time, they, because it was COVID, the Navajo Nation um, 
cleared a, a burial plot for all the people who died of COVID. We couldn't even take her and bury her at our family plot because she died of COVID. And at the time, they didn't know what the bodies would contaminate the land or the water or whatever. And so they decided to bury all the um, people who died of COVID in the same area. And so when I got back to Utah, all of that frustration, the anger and everything and how my aunt was treated and everything in my family, it was just really dismal. And I remember when I got home, I went to sleep and that's when I had my dream. I had my dream of, of going to Yellowstone. I was sitting in Yellowstone and in the tall grass and I was watching the sunset like I have numerous times before. And the bison were grazing and it was just so peaceful and I was sitting there and all of a sudden I heard the jingle dresses I heard jingle dresses I heard the jingles from the dresses and I started looking around and then all of a sudden I saw these women start coming out and they were dancing with the bison and I remember when my dream I just felt so peaceful I felt calm I felt hope I felt like things are going to get better and I woke up and I told my wife and my girls, I said, I had this dream. And I told them the dream, and they thought it was a beautiful dream. And, and then I just told them, I said, you know what? It would be great if we could make this reality. If we could take the healing power of the jingle dress to the land and heal the land and the ancestors and the people there, that they're going to come back and help us heal during COVID. And they just thought it was a, a great idea and I said you know and I told my girls I said so do you think you girls can dance and my girls were excited they said yeah you know and I said if we can get two more girls because at the time we're all you know of course couldn't do a big group of people so I said why don't we, if we could get two more girls four girls I said four dancers that would represent the four worlds in our culture as, as Diné people and that's when um, the girls said, we can get, you know, Sunny and Joanne be gay because they were really close and we were actually quarantined with their family during this time. And so we asked them and I told them the dream. And, and so that's kind of how it started. We started out wanting to go to the land, taking the healing power to jingle dress to the land and to dance. It was funny because the girls are just girls. They weren't models. They've never been to a photo shoot or been in a photo shoot. And so when we went out to the salt flats, <clears throat> they got the regalia on. I got my lights all set up and, you know, we we're sitting right in the middle of the salt flats. Nobody was there because of, because of COVID. And it was so peaceful out there and we were just looking around. And as the girls um, stood in front of the camera, I got behind the camera and we just kind of stared at each other. You know, it was just a silent moment. And then when finally one of my daughters said, hey, dad, how do you want us to pose? And I just had to laugh because I had no idea. And they had no idea, you know. And I just said, you know, girls, just feel the spirit of the land. Feel, feel the land. And then just start posing, you know. And so they did. They just, you know, they just kind of started posing. And I started taking the photos. And after a while, when I was standing there, and I was looking in the viewfinder, I realized that, with the artificial light, it didn't look real to me. So I said, okay, wait, wait a minute. I said, so I put all the lights away and I said, we're just going to rely on, on nature. And that was the thing that I really wanted to do in my, in my, in this project is I wanted, I didn't want to just have pretty pictures of girls in, in regalia. I wanted them to be unified with the land because to me, land is so important to all of us, not just Native people, but everyone. You know, and, and my philosophy is like the land doesn't need us. We need the land. And the, the, the great part of this whole thing is, is that that's all we planned to do was to just be there and do this one photo shoot at the Salt Flats just to bring, make that dream come true. The part that was the most spiritual part of the whole thing was when we were done with our photo shoot, I said, okay, let's, you know, let's dance for the people of COVID and for the people here on this land, the ancestors. So we set up the little 
a little Bluetooth speaker and the girls got ready to dance. I played the song and girls danced and it was just so wonderful because when they were dancing, we didn't feel like we were alone. We really felt like the ancestors of that land were, were dancing with them, that they were there and tears just started coming out of my eyes and it was such a spiritual moment for, for me. <clears throat> and I really thought, wow, this is, this is great that this is happening, you know. And when the girls were done, we were just really quiet. Someone said, we can't just do this only with this one time. we got to do this more. And we all felt that way. It's interesting to me you talk about that you didn't want it just to be models posing. And it really feels, at least in the photographs I have seen from that project, the Art Heels project, that it almost seems like the 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 young women there are almost standing there as spokespeople for the land, a voice of the land, because the land around them seems like an integral part of of what you photographed. And did you know when you had this dream that the jingle dress dance from the Ojibwe people had begun during the, another pandemic? Yeah, that that was that was really an eye opener. I didn't know that. I had no idea. I knew from the Standing Rock um, movement back in 2016 was the first time my, my daughter Erin and I witnessed a healing jingle dress dance. And so I knew what the jingle dress represented, but I didn't know the history of the jingle dress. So how I found out was that after about a month of doing the project, I got a phone call from one of my friends and she actually used um, some of my images from <clears throat> 2016 during that healing jingle dress dance for her projects that she was doing. She was doing the history of the jingle dress dance. So she had um, contacted me years before to use some of my images. But she noticed on Facebook what I was doing. And so she called me and she asked me, just like you did, how did you start this project? So I told her about my dream. I told her how I picked four girls because of the four worlds of um, our culture and how we wanted to go and heal the land. And then she says, do you know the history of, you know, how the jingle just the origin? And I said, no, I, I don't. And so she started telling me, she said, this is what I found through my research, she says. The story goes that an Ojibwe man, his daughter was sick with the influenza flu back in 1918. So he went to sleep and in his dream, he was told how to make these dresses and how to do the dance. And in his dream, the, the person that told him all these things said, if you do this, it'll heal your daughter. And so... Um, he got up the next morning and he told his wife to make four dresses. And he said to make four dresses and all the four dresses should be in the sacred colors of the Ojibwe. And we will give them to four young girls within our family to dance this dance, you know. And so his wife made the dresses. The story goes that that evening, they, the four girls danced. And as they were dancing, um, they said by the end of the night, the little girl who was um, sick with the flu was dancing with the girls and was healed. So it was really, um, for both of us, it was really a, a wonderful moment because, you know, the parallels between the origin and, and what we're doing was really... Happening in the pandemic and then the, the four girls, the four women in both yeah. stories. Very beautiful connection. That's amazing. Yeah. And the cool thing about the whole thing, too, is, is that the Ojibwe, they actually um, invited us to come to Minnesota. And they helped us with funding and everything to get to Minnesota. So that summer, we traveled out to Minnesota to the Millex Reservation, where it originated. And the girls were able to dance where the first jingle dress dance was done in the 1900s. And it was such a spiritual time and moment because... Um, she had been able to contact the relatives of that family, that first family that did the jingle dress dance. 
So we were able to dance with their relatives from that first dance and they were there and we danced with their, their family and it was just amazing. So it's brought a lot of blessings to a lot of people during this time. Even today, we're still get a lot of people who are blessed by this project. I wonder if I could ask you a final question, which is, you mentioned feeling your ancestors' presence with you when you're on a photo shoot. Is that something you can describe to me, what that feeling is like or what that awareness is? When I go out in the land and I feel my ancestors with me, I feel like they're guiding me to be a better person, guiding me to know what it is that I can and cannot capture. So there's a lot of times where I'll go out and see something that's just beautiful or, and then I, I can feel if it's okay to take that photo. And I feel like that's the part that we as human beings need to be in tune with more is that inner spirit within all of us. We need to start listening to that more. And that's one of the things I've learned about the jingle dress. If you hold one jingle and you shake that jingle, it makes no sound. But if you put the jingles all together, it makes a beautiful sound, a beautiful moment for you. And, and the, the thing that I love about that is, is that we can't do what we're wanting to do alone. We, we need the land. We need the people around us. We need the people that came before us in order for us to, to prosper and for people to want to be around us. That's our time for today. We hope you have a place in your life that you're connected to, that you can return to with your loved ones. The times when we gather amplify the quiet good of living in communities, and they tether us to a spirit larger than our own. Maybe you can start a family tradition of gathering today, one that will end up being remembered across generations. This episode was produced and edited by Austin Ball. Post Sound was designed by Kira Brewer and Daniel Phillips. Thanks again to Farina King, Nathan Hadfield, Vince Bile, Amanda Russell, Sierra Yazzie, and Eugene Tapahe for speaking about the power of gathering in their lives. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, be sure and leave a good comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. <laughs>